Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and last week on the program, we previewed the 33rd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. This week, we'll discuss who Hurston was. We say that Zora Neale Hurston and the Eatonville community are two sides of the same hand. We'll talk about editors of the Florida Historical Quarterly, past and present. We've had six full-time editors. Of those six, two of them have more than 60 years as editor. And we'll hear about the historic fire truck, Old Betsy. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When I get in the Illinois, I'm going to spread the news about the Florida boy. Shove it over. Hey, 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 you can't you line it? Oh, shack a lack a lack a lack a lack a lack a can't you move it? Hey, hey, can't you try? In the 1930s and 40s, writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston was a celebrated figure of the Harlem Renaissance. Hurston is best remembered for her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, the story of Janie Crawford and her soulmate, Tea Cake. Hurston's other novels include Jonah's Gourdvine, the story of an unfaithful man and his tolerant wife, Moses, Man of the Mountain, a retelling of the biblical story of Moses, and Seraph on the Swanee, Hurston's only book with white people as main characters. As an anthropologist who studied under the renowned Franz Boas, Hurston published two collections of folklore, Mules and Men and Tell My Horse. Hurston also wrote dozens of short stories, essays, and dramatic works. By the time Hurston died in 1960, she was broke, forgotten, and her books were out of print. Today, Zora Neale Hurston is again recognized as an important 20th century writer. In 2018, her book Barracoon, written in 1927, was published for the first time. Since 1990, a festival honoring Hurston's literary legacy and impact on culture has been held in Eatonville, Florida. Hurston grew up in Eatonville, the oldest incorporated town entirely governed by African Americans. N.Y. Nafiri is founding director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. For Zora Neale Hurston, Eatonville represents the quintessential cultural impact that people of African ancestry, particularly rural southern uh, people in this country, contribute to the culture of the United States. And because she grew up in Eatonville, an all-black community, where there was not artificial lens of viewing people, as she says in, in Mules and Men, in Eatonville you got what your strengths brought you. Uh, if you were an energetic, aggressive, um, productive person, then that's who you were. If you were a lazy, 
no count, ne'er do well, that's who you were and you couldn't use as an excuse what they or the outside society did to you or against you. And at the same time, as a trained observer, as a person who had studied under Dr. Franz Boas, uh, a father of American anthropology, as a person who uh, had access to her native village and that community, she recognized the beauty, the intrinsic beauty, of the people of her heritage group and not only recognized that beauty, but was able to present it in a way that others can recognize it. Uh, perhaps not so much during her lifetime with her contemporaries in Harlem, uh, some of whom thought that she was entirely too folksy, but the point is that uh, work that is truly of merit lives, and today um, Zora Neale Hurston's work, her literature, her genius is acknowledged and celebrated uh, throughout the literary world. Zora Neale Hurston's literary career began even before she graduated from Barnard College in 1927. In 1925, Hurston's short story Spunk was included in a respected anthology called The New Negro. While attending college in New York, Hurston worked with Harlem Renaissance contemporaries, including Langston Hughes and Wallace Thurman, on the literary magazine Fire. After earning her Bachelor of Arts degree in anthropology, Hurston continued her graduate studies at Columbia University. In 1929, Hurston moved to the quiet town of O'Galley in Brevard County, Florida, to write her first and most important collection of African-American folklore. Florence M. Turcott is literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida. Zora came to O'Galley in um, April of 1929, and she, her goal was to find a little place where she could, she could write and she could have peace and quiet. Um, she found that in a one-room cottage here in O'Galley, um, and she rented it. She had a, a pretty good rental agreement, and she used that time to fish in the Indian River and to enjoy nature, and she put together her folklore stories in a book which was published called Mules and Men. Virginia Lynn Moylan is author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, published by University Press of Florida. The book Mules and Men was published in 1935 and was essentially a nonfiction account of Hurston's adventures and experiences as a folklorist and anthropologist in the late 1920s and early 1930s. It's divided into two sections. The first section is devoted to her experiences in Eatonville collecting folklore and includes 70 of her glorious folktales, including why women always take advantage of men. The second section covers the period that she uh, did research in New Orleans into hoodoo religion and practices and even became a priestess. And the book is important not just from the standpoint of its entertainment value, but it was the first book of folklore that recorded the tales exactly as they were spoken. And today it is still considered the preeminent collection of African American folklore. In 1937, Zora Neale Hurston wrote her best-known and much-loved work, Their Eyes Were Watching God, Flo Turcotte, Lynn Moylan, and N.Y. Nathiri. 
their eyes were watching God is just, it's, an, it's history, it's fiction, it's pathos, it's, it's tragedy, all rolled up together in one incredible literary gem. And it, making history come alive is sort of what, what I'd like to do and what Zora, that's what excites me so much about Zora is that she, she, di she fictionalized real life and said a lot about the human condition and a lot about life in Florida during, during her um, stay here. My personal favorite work of Hurston's is by far Their Eyes Are Watching God. It's a, no it's a beautiful novel. It's a love story about a woman who not only finds her true love, but she finds her own inner strength and her voice. And it just doesn't get any better than that. Zora Neale Hurston is a part of my family lore. I did not really understand who she was in the literary uh, realm until I was uh, older. I was actually, I actually read Their Eyes Are Watching God when my, after our first son was born, uh, that, that book was a Penguin classic that cost 99 cents. And when I was trying to, uh, while my son was napping, I would, that's how I, that's how I read that book. I, I know Zora Neale Hurston from my, my mother's mother uh, telling us about her, her uh, companionship with Zora Neale Hurston, sometimes uh, scaring me uh, with uh, uh, folk tales from Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, in fact, my husband uh, did uh, literary research on Zora Neale Hurston. There are any number of people that were around me over a period of time, uh, but I did not truly come to understand who she was until I read that book and um, then began to reconnect some of the, uh, some of the impact that she that she had. Throughout the 1930s and 40s, Zora Neale Hurston was celebrated as an accomplished and sometimes controversial writer, folklorist, and anthropologist. In 1948, Hurston was devastated when she was falsely accused of molesting the 10-year-old son of her former Harlem landlady. The charges were dismissed and the boy recanted his claims, but Hurston's reputation and career were destroyed. And why theory? She was falsely accused of molestation of a a young boy, um, falsely accused, completely uh, vindicated because she was not in the United States when the alleged abuse occurred or, or crime occurred. But the black press um, picked up the story after she was vindicated and uh, really ruined her reputation. I think that she uh, fled back to her home state. After leaving New York, Hurston lived briefly in Miami and Belle Glade before moving to Brevard County. She moved into the same O'Galley cottage where she had been happy and productive at the beginning of her career. When Hurston was unable to purchase her cottage in O'Galley, she moved to an apartment in Cocoa and then to a trailer on Merritt Island. During this period, she worked as a librarian. Virginia Lynn Moylan. Hurston was fired from Patrick Air Force Base as a technical librarian, basically because she supported a whistleblower um, colleague who had turned in one of his supervisors for destroying documents without going through the proper authorization. 
So she collected unemployment for a while and finally was offered a job by a man named C.E. Bolin who had founded a newspaper in Fort Pierce called the Fort Pierce Chronicle. So she moved very soon afterward and went to Fort Pierce to take the job in 1957. Sora Neil Hurston died in January 1960 in the St. Lucie County Welfare Home. She was broke, forgotten, and her books were out of print. Florence M. Turcott. She was a ward of the, of, the, of the county, and when she died, her effects thus were ordered burned. They were ordered destroyed. Um, nobody had come forward to claim them. Um, a friend of hers who was a sheriff's deputy was going by the nursing home at the time and stopped and literally doused the flames and uh, saved a bunch of her um, manuscripts that were uh, about to be destroyed. Today, Zora Neale Hurston is more popular than ever. The 33rd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities began January 7th with a presentation by Hurston biographer Valerie Boyd. The outdoor festival portion of the event takes place January 28th through 30th with the first day focused on students. Hurston's work is taught in high schools and colleges around the world. And why not theory? An IB International Baccalaureate uh, teacher of 11th grade students in Hampton, Virginia is planning to uh, bring her students to Edenville for a field trip. And as we were talking about the planning and the budget, I said, well, will they be uh, doing Disney or Universal? She said, no. We're coming to Eatonville, and that's the only reason that we're coming to Florida, is coming to Eatonville, and after we do this uh, day, then we will be returning. So it's, uh, it's quite interesting to see that now, if you're going to be educated, you have to have read Zora Neale Hurston. We spoke with Virginia Lynn Moylan, author of the book Zora Neale Hurston's Final Decade, Florence M. Turcott, literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida, and N.Y. Nathiri, founding director of the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. The cam got a pistol, he tried to play bad, but I'm gonna take it if it make me mad, shove it over. Hey, hey, oh, can't you lie now? I a like a like a like a like a like a ah, can't you move it? Hey, 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 oh, can't you try? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Every moment makes a contribution. Every little detail plays a part. Having just the vision's no solution. Everything depends on execution. Putting it together, that's what counts. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, as I just said, you're Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. What does an editor do? An editor, especially of a state journal, wears many, many hats. If you're editor of a national or international journal, you have a large staff to do many of the chores. But if you're editor of a state journal, it's pretty much you. And uh, so I do a variety of things. 
I go to conferences to hear papers. And depending on what I think about the paper presented, I invite scholars to submit their manuscript for consideration for the quarterly. Also, every manuscript that comes in, I uh, read all of the manuscripts. Some of them, I think, have potential but are not quite ready to go out to referees yet. I know they won't get a good reading if they do. And so I work with the scholar uh, to try to make changes that need to be made before I submit it to uh, referees. I select the referees based on what the article covers, and I contact those referees. I arrange for them to read the manuscript. By the way, all referees do not know who the author is, so it's a double-blind process. The scholar does not know who read their work, and the referees do not know who the scholar is. Only I know who both parties are. Uh, this helps with the process because you may be reading something of someone you know. Uh, you may be reading someone's work with whom you have problems, and you don't want that to interfere with the reading. Uh, so it's a double-blind process. I choose them. Once the manuscripts come back, the, the reviews come back, I make the decision. If the decision is to go ahead with the manuscript and to move toward publication, then I contact the author. I tell them what revisions need to be made based on the referee reports. When those are done, then it's my responsibility to copy edit the manuscript. If there are images that go with this, then we have to seek permission to publish those images. Once everything is put together for a particular issue, then I submit it to the person who puts it in the format that it needs in order to be published. It goes to the publisher, and then it's all over <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. I'm on to the next issue. Well, what qualifies a person to become the editor of an academic journal like this? All the editors of the Florida Historical Quarterly since about 1960 uh, have all been faculty members at universities, at uh, UF, at uh, USF, or at UCF. Um, so first of all, you're a faculty member. When the job is posted, sometimes in, in some state journals, they ask for someone with knowledge of the specific state. In my case, I was the person who would have this job would be knowledgeable in Southern history so that it's framed in a larger context. So they're all faculty members. They have faculty obligations like everyone else. I had some editing experience before I came. I was the associate editor of the Tennessee Encyclopedia Project. I had public editing experience in primary documents. I worked on the James K. Polk papers while I was in graduate school. And I had been a book review editor for another journal. So I had editing experience coming into it. While the Florida Historical Quarterly is just about to publish its 100th volume, how many editors has the Florida Historical Quarterly had in its 99 volumes? Well, like many state journals, very few, actually. Uh, we've had six editors, six full-time editors. We have had some interim editors when there was a period of time between editors. But we've had six full-time editors. Of those six, two of them have more than 60 years as editor. Um, the first editor, Julian Young, and Sam Proctor, both had more than 30 years of, of editing. I'm in my 16th year as editor. Wow. 
Well, you obviously do a whole lot with the journal. As you said, you wear many hats. Uh, what editorial staff, though, assists in the production of the Florida Historical Quarterly? We've had some changes in 2011. We had an assistant editor, Dan Murphy, uh, who's also a faculty member at UCF. He was assistant editor until 2017 when he moved on to other avenues and things that he wanted to do. Uh, we have interns most semesters, but not all semesters. In 2018, the dean of the College of Arts and Humanities at UCF created a faculty position for someone who would be, in many ways, a managing editor uh, for the 11 journals that are in the College of Arts and Humanities. So he works with us as well. Great. Well, thanks, Connie. Thank you. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. She has this look at the historic fire truck, Old Betsy. Earl Midlam is a lifelong resident of Venice, Florida, as well as a former vice mayor and a three-term city councilman. For many years, he's been one of the main caretakers for Venice's first fire truck, Old Betsy, a 1926 American LaFrance. Old Betsy was delivered to Moorhaven, Florida the first week of September 1926. It came in by train from Elmira, New York. It was only there uh, not even 24 hours, and they had a newspaper burned down. And, of course, they hadn't even trained with the truck, so they lost the newspaper back in 1926, and less than two weeks later, the Great Miami Hurricane came in. They killed thousands of people. There was no dike around Lake Okeechobee, so the water was pushed over the banks. The truck had 15 foot of water on top of it. The truck was only there from September to November 4th. The town was destroyed. The truck was used after the hurricane to carry bodies from the fields because everything else was destroyed to burning pits so they could burn the bodies of the people who had drowned. The 1926 fire truck, known as Old Betsy, is even older than the city of Venice, which was incorporated in 1927. Until 1949, Old Betsy was the only fire truck and covered an area from Inglewood to Gulfgate. So the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers, they're the ones who founded the city of Venice, Florida, purchased it from the American La France Fire Company in Amira, New York. So they went over and picked it up and brought it to Venice on November 4th of 1926. That's before the city was incorporated. It was a union that decided to build a, a community on the west coast of Florida and uh, on the city of Venice, which was right on the Gulf. They got the truck, brought it over, put it right in the service. Old Betsy has had several good visitors like Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison sat on it in January 1927. The Brotherhood was trying to lure him to Venice. Go ahead, was a couple of hotels that they built in less than a year. Even though she's resided in Venice for most of her life, 
old Betsy has never had a permanent home. Earl Midlam, his wife Karen, Venice Heritage Inc., and other community partners are working to raise funds to house old Betsy in a display building on the Venice Cultural Campus. I've had a great opportunity for over 50 years to take care of her. I've even taken it to Edison's birthday party in Fort Myers six times, drove it down and back. We've taken it across the Skyway to St. Petersburg. She's won trophies. She served us quite well. She's our city's ambassador now. I think every child has either pulled on the, the bell, rang the bell, or had her picture taken with it. Kids don't crawl on it. We have it with a staunchness around the truck. But a lot of people love to have their photograph taken with it. In parades, they love to wave at her. We're in the process of putting a new building up for her, which will be by our community center, our archives. So old Betsy will have a place that will be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It will be all glass on one side so people can sit in an enclosed area on benches and we'll see her. And she'll be lit up. And we can still get the truck in and out because when you're approaching 100 years old, you never know when something's going to break. Old Betsy's 100th birthday is coming up in just a few short years. Thanks to Earl Midlam and other devoted caretakers, the fire truck is in mint condition and ready to celebrate. In 2011, I raised $31,000 in one month, thanks to my wife and some other volunteers. And I took it to Daytona Beach, Florida, to the Florida Prison Service, a program called Pride over there. And we had 30 and 40 a day working on it. Took it over on December 15th, had it back on Valentine's Day. They stripped it right to the frame. It's only had four sets of tires in 100 years. That's not bad. The truck still pumps. We try to pump with it at least once a year. And people love to see water come out of it. We re-chromed it, redid all the leather seats. We have all the original hardware for it. We've had it reappraised, insurance purposes. It's owned by the city of Venice. And I was very fortunate to be a city commissioner and former vice mayor of the city. So uh, I had a little bit of say in it. But the truck, we've had it, uh, the soda celebration, Bradenton, Inglewood, Northport, we've had it everywhere. We've even had three different governors on it. Porter Goss, who was the drug czar for the United States, has been on it. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Vern Buchanan, congressman, and uh, former governor Bob Graham. So she's carried a lot of dignitaries through the years. Since 1926, Old Betsy has been in service to her community. During the last almost 100 years, there's no telling how many people have had their photograph taken with her or have taken a photograph of her. Earl Midlam hopes there's still some photographs out there yet to be discovered, perhaps in a long-forgotten album, in a closet, an attic, or in an archive. We're still looking for more photographs. We've checked the archives. Somewhere out there, I'm going to ask the citizens, if, especially around Lake Okeechobee, Palm Beach, anybody has a photograph of Moorhaven receiving a fire truck on September, first week of September, 1926. We've checked everywhere. And of course, the American La France Fire Company went out of business. So they don't have anything. But we do have the records that when it was sent from Amira, New York, to Moorhaven, we got it, the records when it was sent to Venice. And we already know some of the people went and got it in 1926 and brought it to Venice. I got a gentleman, his daddy was police chief, fire chief, and public works director. He's in his 90s. He drove the truck when he was 15. So it means something to them. To learn more about Old Betsy, the 1926 American LaFrance fire truck, and to find out how to give a tax-deductible donation for her permanent home and future maintenance, go to veniceheritage.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker. 
public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society, and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.